This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in today for Mike Simpson. And we're here, of course, as we always are, to talk about the latest developments with the coronavirus pandemic. Many doctors and scientists are getting worried that the U.S. is in for the worst coronavirus spike yet. Not just them. I'm a little worried myself. (laughs) It's almost winter, but the cases and the number of people in the hospitals are both increasing. Is the worst yet to come? And and here's another question. Can we test ourselves out of this mess? Now, there's one doctor's group that's saying yes, but I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like the idea of giving myself a test. It's not all bad right now, though. Doctors seem to be getting better at treating the disease. We'll look into what they're doing and just how good it may get. Uh, there's one major airline, and it is taking a step back to the old normal, but I'm guessing when you hear it, you're probably not going to like it. Yeah, you know what? I'm not un- I'm not comfortable flying under any circumstance personally right now. That doesn't help me go, I want to get on a plane anytime soon. But let's start with the current rise in cases. Dr. William Hazeltine is the president of Access Health International. Charles, you and Chris Seedens asked him about how we could head off the most dire predictions. Uh, it's certainly possible to do so. We have great examples in some countries. One-fifth of the world is COVID-free. That happens to be China. Uh, it's not because they're totalitarian. It's because they follow the rule book for what you should do in a pandemic. It is possible. Now, is it possible for us in America? Is it possible for us in Europe? That remains to be seen. If you're going to control a pandemic, you need good leadership. Uh, very important because people do follow leaders. You need good governance, which means you need a public health service that really works. And you need social solidarity, people who are prepared to make some sacrifices in their own freedom to protect others. Unfortunately, it looks like the United States fails on all three. Uh, That's a very sad indictment. Uh, I do hope we will get better leadership. I do hope that uh, we will exercise the powers that the federal government does have to uh, help states and local communities fight this. And I do hope that people get the message. One thing that was encouraging to me was that there were two women, let's call them of a certain age, they were going to a Trump rally and people said, if the president told you to wear masks, would you? And they said, of course we would. So that means people do listen to leaders. Unfortunately, our current leader isn't giving us the advice that we need, nor are his Uh, the people who work for him uh, in the government, at least uh, in the political part of the government. Dr. Hasseltine, a lot has been made about national leadership on this issue or or lack of it in many cases, Uh, but also state level, uh, local level. I know that in Florida most recently, the Florida governor was was, um, going in one direction when I I believe it came to masks, and and the mayor of Miami Beach was forced to take legal action to try and get people in his community to wear masks. I I believe the same thing in in North Dakota, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Fargo, North Dakota, where the the governor of the state says one thing, the local the Local leaders, the uh, the uh, city officials say another, and, and people are just confused through the whole thing. I agree with you, and that's why we need clear national leadership. You know, we have every government has the ability to uh, central government has the ability to bypass local rules in case of emergency. We all know that. We know that for wartime. You know, we're about the estimates are we're about to lose as many people to COVID as we've lost in World War II. 
This is an internal war we're fighting. And the government does have the authority. It chooses not to use them under this administration. Uh, I think that's a very bad decision. Uh, when you leave the situation up to local jurisdictions, whether they be states, counties, or townships, you get a tremendous amount of confusion, as you have mentioned. And I can mention another 10, where uh, the mayor says this, the governor says that. Uh, it is uh, a very complicated situation for most people. Most people want to do what's right. They just aren't quite sure what to do, and they need guidance. Well, and, and that's why, though, I wonder if they're going to get that guidance for two reasons. One, even if there is a, a change in the White House, you know, that wouldn't happen until the end of January. And, you know, nothing happens overnight in Washington, God knows. So we would still be talking about many, many, many months before a different message potentially would be coming from the federal government. And even if it did, as you just pointed out, you've got this diversity of opinion in all the states. And in fact, diversity of opinion within the different states. I just don't see how you end up coming to a unified approach. You know, I'm more optimistic than you are. It's, it's Good just, for you. Uh, I'm not saying you a whole lot because I'm not very optimistic. <laughs> you were right to point out that we're heading into a very dangerous uh, situation. You know, the problem that we have, particularly in the United States, is we're taking off from a very high level. We're taking off from a level of 40,000 people uh, a day being infected, now going up to 60,000. I would guess that if things continue like this, we'll be at 100,000 a day. And that's gonna be trailed by a number of our hospitals getting overloaded, uh, unfortunately by our cemeteries being uh, stressed. It's gonna be really serious. Now I know you're gonna talk about uh, how the impact of this is lessened in terms of death, but there's two things to think about in a war. There's death and there's the wounded. And there are a lot of people that are gonna come out of this with permanent wounds. They're gonna have kidney malfunctions, diabetes. They'll have uh, the consequence of heart attacks and strokes. They may be missing a limb. And then there are the long haulers that sometimes this goes on the symptoms for many months. So this is not just the dead, it's also the wounded. And some of those that survive do survive, but they survive wounded. Dr. Hasseltine, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. William Hasseltine, he is the president of Access Health International. Doctors say one of the key components to stopping this pandemic is testing. Lots of testing is being done in the U.S., but it's, well, you know, it's kind of disjointed and it varies from place to place. Now, the Association of American Medical Colleges is calling for coordinated national testing strategy. Dr. Atul Grover is the organization's Research and Action Institute Executive Director. He talked to KYW in Philadelphia's Matt Leon about the state of testing right now and what he'd like to see moving forward. Oh, I think uh, if I had to give testing a grade, it'd be somewhere around a C minus, not quite a failure, but nothing you want to write home to mom about. What are the biggest problems? So the biggest problem right now when it comes to testing uh, is just the availability of the tests themselves and the pieces of the tests to be able to get them in the hands of laboratories around the country. So we should be doing somewhere close to 9 million tests per day. We're doing about one-ninth of that. And to put this in greater perspective, over the last seven or eight months, the duration of the pandemic, we've done just over 110 million tests. And that's about how many tests we should now be doing every two weeks. So we're nowhere near where we need to be. 
What is the AAMC calling for with regards to testing? Well, the first thing that we need is leadership, and that needs to come at a federal level, uh, complete with collection of data so that we actually know where we are. I think the states are doing uh, a decent job at trying to collect this, and there are private entities across the country that are trying to report. If you look at groups like Johns Hopkins that you know, have created these dashboards, um, they're really stepping in in places where the federal government hasn't. But the federal government needs to be reporting on a regular basis, daily if possible, exactly where we are in terms of our current level of testing, where we need to be, and what they're going to do to get us there. So we essentially need public reporting in a dashboard format where we can tell where the supply chains are limited, what the federal government through the DPA or, or otherwise is doing to ensure those supplies get to the places that they're needed, and exactly how we're going to get to the targets and what that target might need to be for different states as we move forward. I myself haven't been tested, and you hear so much about different types of tests. Would we be best served to have decided on this is the test we're going to use and flood the zone with them, or are there benefits to having different types of testing? Well, I think there's benefits to having different companies uh, provide the same type of tests. And really, we're talking about, you know, a couple of categories here. And if you go to AAMC.org slash COVID roadmap, you'll find all the information related to COVID, including a guide to those tests, which hopefully uh, we've tried to make as, as clear as possible. But the testing can be broken down for most of us into two categories, diagnostic testing, which basically will tell us for people who have symptoms or have been exposed, hey, do you have COVID or not? These are generally the most sensitive tests, but may take a day or so to come back. And then we have screening tests, which really are what we need to have in place across the country in far greater numbers, really about 8 million of those a day out of the 9 million. So 8 million screening tests a day, 800,000 to a million diagnostic tests a day. Those screening tests are generally much more rapid in terms of getting a response, about 15 minutes, but they're not as sensitive, meaning they're not going to pick up 100% of all the infections out there, but that's okay. We shouldn't be relying on testing alone as a means to control the virus and its spread. I think 1600 Pennsylvania learned that the hard way. You can't just rely on testing alone. So the challenge is how do you get those tests out to as many people as possible, even though you know that in most cases, they're about 90% sensitive, meaning that it's going to miss about one out of 10 people. But if we had those more available throughout the population, we could learn to, to really mitigate that risk. But that's what we need, about 8 million of those a day. And so let's, let's step back and put this in perspective as well. When a politician says, I'm excited, I've got a company coming out with 150 million tests, great. What are you going to do the two weeks after that? Because that's what we need for the next two weeks. And we just haven't heard that from the federal government. Who, uh, once again, this is kind of a fundamental question that I don't know that we've ever gotten a straightforward answer to. Who and when should you get tested? When, because I feel like as you live through this, you find yourself in so many situations where you're asking yourself, well, was I in danger there? Well, this person knew this person. Give us some, some clear guidance here when you should get tested. Certainly, you want to be tested if you have any symptoms. CDC lists those symptoms, uh, everything from fevers and coughs to diarrhea, pretty much range of things. But also, if you've been uh, around anybody that uh, potentially has had the virus, and CDC just changed their definition, I think appropriately so, with more information 
about who meets that category. And where it used to be that if we were around somebody for 15 minutes in close proximity uh, at a time, then we would want to go out and get tested if we found out later that, that they were infected. Right now, the CDC is saying, I think this makes great sense, if you had 15 minutes of cumulative exposure in a day, right? So I'm coming in and out of a classroom, say, you want to get tested because that itself is probably a significant exposure. But the real key here is you want to make sure there's enough tests available to screen everybody who thinks that they might have been exposed or thinks they're going to be in a situation where they don't want to expose grandma or their immunocompromised neighbor down the street who needs help. Coming up after this short break, your chances of survival if you get the coronavirus getting a lot better. Research suggests the death rate for the virus has dropped substantially since the pandemic started. In one study, following the outcome of COVID patients admitted to New York University's hospital from March to August, mortality rates dropped by 18 percent. Well, it's looking like doctors are getting much better at treating the virus, and I'd like to think after eight months, that's the case. Dr. Kaleli Gates is a critical care pulmonologist at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Charles and Chris asked about why the death rate is finally starting to go down. The effect that we're seeing on mortality is probably multifactorial. I think that it does help that we have drugs that have shown some efficacy, like remdesivir and steroids like dexamethasone. And we have to remember that the studies that have shown a mortality benefit in COVID to date is only dexamethasone. But remdesivir has shown that there is um, fewer days of illness and Theoretically, that may translate to, you know, less side effects and complications in the hospital and in the ICU. So we do have medications that we didn't have at the beginning of all of this. And so I think that that is part of what's going on. Dr. Gates, with people hearing mortality rates are coming down, is there a concern in the medical industry of, of people letting their guard down because of that? We are very concerned that people will let their guards down, that they would say, oh, we, you know, we, we have cures for this, um, and that people are simply suffering from pandemic fatigue and they just want to go back to life as we knew it before March. Um, and the biggest message that I can speak and hopefully everybody else kind of echoes is that we're not done with this and we have to continue to do the things that we know help decrease the spread of this virus, and that's masking, social distancing, I mean, just being safe and smart as we continue to fight this together. How much is the mortality rate coming down due to uh, older people, perhaps, you know, not nothing is uniform, but perhaps uh, in aggregate taking it more seriously and, and protecting themselves from getting ill? And what we're seeing are younger people who are getting it. But of course, their mortality rate has always been considerably lower. Right. I think that. There are mixed reasons why we're seeing this drop in mortality. Um, There are some people that suggest that wearing masks is decreasing the amount of virus that you're exposed to. And so you have less illness from that. Um, There are others suggesting that the virus may be kind of mutating and is not as as um, virulent or or strong as it was previously. Um, And others, as we've talked about, are saying that we just know how to fight this better. Um, I think all of those are probably uh, at play and it'll be interesting to see all of this kind of pan out. What I can say now is, you know, this is just kind of an end of one at Northwestern, but 
the majority of our patients now tend to be older patients. And so not that there are not younger patients, but we are seeing more older people affected. And so we're not out of the woods and we can't say that like our older people are, are you know, not at much of a risk now. We Everyone's still at risk. But, but that's interesting what you just said. Since your patient uh, demographic is skewing uh, on the older side, are you nonetheless seeing even in that population group uh, a notable uh, decline in mortality? So if I, I, again, I haven't studied this at our, our, you know, at our hospitals per se, the general gestalt is that, you know, we have a better sense of the, the course of this illness. And as we pointed out at the beginning, we do have medications like remdesivir and dexamethasone that very well may change the course. And so my general feeling is yes, um, but I would really have to rely on the actual numbers to make that a definitive statement. How concerned are you these days about younger people and coronavirus? So I remain concerned about younger people and not as much that they'll get significantly ill from the virus, but that they will not know that they're ill and they will transmit the virus to more vulnerable populations like our immunocompromised or people with comorbidities and our elderly. And so that is why I remain concerned about them. Um, It's the similar concern at the beginning that they can serve as unknown vectors for this virus um, that can really cause significant impact on family members. Do you think that um, when it comes again to to the younger population, that there's an issue with even though they they do tend or or they don't tend, I should say, to get as ill, there's so much that that is unknown about this virus. You know, we have people who have long term consequences. We have people who seemingly recover and and still suffer from something that they think has to uh, be associated with the uh, coronavirus. Is there a concern that some young people may not know and we may not know whether even an asymptomatic infection at, say, 20 years of age may lead to something 10 years down the road? You are absolutely correct. We don't know the impact fully of COVID. And there are a lot of studies, including studies at Northwestern, that are going to look at this. We're going to look at patients over a period of time to look at the impact on lung health and other um, aspects of health, even in asymptomatic people. There is reason to believe that there may have been some mild inflammation in these patients and how it will impact them down the road. We don't know yet. Um, The funny thing is there's no clear expert on COVID as this is new. And so we're all learning um, from each other um, and from what the virus is showing us. So it will definitely be interesting and imperative that we continue to ask these questions and do the research to kind of get the answers. Dr. Gates, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Clearly Gates works in critical care at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Airlines, we all remember airlines. Those are those those companies that have things that fly. Yeah, that used to make billions of dollars, but yeah. apparently not so much anymore. That's right. Airlines, yeah, as we all know, I mean, they've taken steps to try to get people to be as safe as, as possible with the virus. They've been requiring masks and doing temperature checks, that sort of thing. Southwest, for a while anyway, blocked off the middle seat for social distancing. Well, that is coming to an end. Southwest says it will no longer block off the middle seats. Uh, This is in time for Thanksgiving. This comes as the airline has lost lots of money. Unlike some places in, you know, a, a district of Columbia somewhere on the East Coast, airlines have not been the super spreaders that people thought. People are wearing masks. 
people have gotten on the planes and some even been sick, but we've seen no super spreading incidents coming from the airline industry. So I guess maybe it's time. Joe Brancatelli is a business travel and airline industry analyst. He runs JoeSentMe.com. He spoke with Charles and Chris about the move and the safety of the airline industry in general. There's no question. The airline game from a financial standpoint is a real estate game. The more seats you can cram in and the more people you can cram into those seats, the better your return will be. The problem I have with the Southwest decision, which basically means the industry is now cut in half in terms of that, and we can talk about that, is by its own admission, it's not expecting its own load factors to be above 50% for the foreseeable future. Uh, Now, obviously, Southwest is a grab-and-go airline. They don't assign seats. So I don't understand the the wisdom of giving up the, the moral high ground, not to mention the medical high ground, and say, well, we'll start selling middle seats again, when you're only filling half your planes to start with. Why give away the advantage that Delta and JetBlue and Alaska Airlines, which are still blocking middle seats, now have over you? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but don't all the airlines, I mean, they really do want to sell those seats. I know there was this kind of, it almost was a self-serving um, uh, study that came out. Was it last week or the week before that was done? Uh, they blend think, in together, Charles, huh? the weeks now. These days, the weeks blend in together when you cover Trump. No, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, but, but I think it was United Airlines, and they did it with the government, if I'm not mistaken, where right. it showed that uh, you don't your chances of getting COVID on an airplane were not all that great, and they went into all these explanations for it, which didn't seem to really make a lot of sense, but that's what they claimed the, the study showed. When the bottom line comes, how many people are really going to want to sit in a plane, if more people do fly, crammed in between two other people who may or may not be wearing masks, who may or may not be coughing throughout a four, five, six-hour flight, who's going to want to do that? Uh, my belief is no one, and it's important to remember, Charles, you know, let's keep the baseline in mind. The The Transportation Security Administration, while it's generally useless for everything else, has actually started a wonderful service where they tell you every day, how many people have gone through their checkpoints at the airport. Today, it was 30% of the number of people who flew last year on October 22nd. October 21st, it was yesterday. Um, So when 7 out of 10 people who used to fly are staying home, again, it does not seem to me to be a wise business decision to say, yeah, we're going to cram you in uh, cheek by jowl, again, with all the points you mentioned. And more to the point, when the airline is admitting in Southwest's case that its planes are half empty anyway, if they were fill, if they could sell those seats, okay, they would have started selling those seats already. The only thing I can come to, and again, logic and the airlines are often um, living on different planets, is that Southwest's Christmas bookings look pretty good, and they're hoping to fill them up rather than pull planes out of storage uh, to get, you know, to get the traffic. But if I'm the customer, and I am the customer, I don't work for airlines, I pay airlines to fly me places, and I'm sitting at LAX, well, why wouldn't I choose Alaska or JetBlue or Delta? That is promising me the empty middle seat. It doesn't make sense to me. And I could make the case that the airline that was first to start selling all their seats is now having the hardest time. They're 
they're what's called the cash burn. They're losing the most money of all. That's American Airlines. Their cash burn is twice as high as anyone else's. Joe, thanks for your time today. Okay, enjoy the week. Joe Francatelli, uh, business travel analyst, the founder and editor of the advisory site JoeSentMe.com. I was thinking actually of, of uh, maybe instead of flying, uh, taking a bus, but I can't figure out how to get to Hawaii. Uh, slowly. <laughs> maybe you can kick a ferry. <laughs> if there's a vaccine, uh, will it really get us all back to normal? You know, the old normal? One British scientist I says... I don't even remember what the old normal is. Uh, we walked around. We, we shook hands. Sometimes we'd kiss people, depending who it was. Uh, you'd, you'd sit down in restaurants. You didn't wear masks, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, when I saw a person in a mask, I know one of two things. It was either Halloween or I was being robbed. Yeah, I know. That's that's true. You know, I actually remember uh, in the beginning of the pandemic walking into a bank with a mask on and thinking, I hope they don't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I was saying, if there is a vaccine, uh, is it going to get us back to this kind of normal? Well, John Edmonds is a member of the uh, country's, uh, British, that is, scientific advisory group in emergencies. He says COVID-19 will be around Evermore. Wow. And that's not all doom and gloom. I mean, it sounds like it would be doom and gloom, but he says it's not. He does say a vaccine would help improve the situation, though. How okay. could it how could it be? A, how could there be anything good about it? Uh, you know, it, it, it's really funny. I've become so used to wearing a mask. The other night I was walking the dog at two o'clock in the morning and I forgot to put a mask on. And I was about halfway through the walk and I realized fresh air. Yeah. This is so nice to be outside and smelling the trees and the flowers. It's well, like we forgot. Well, there is one good thing about the pandemic. It gives you uh, an excuse for things that you don't want to do. Oh, no. Listen, I, yeah. I have to go see my, my, my mother and my brother and sister there in Florida. Sorry, pandemic. <laughs> it's a pandemic. I, I can't fly. So you, you see, know? there's always a, there's always a silver lining. Listen, I've used the pandemic in more ways to get out of more things than you... You can't even imagine, but that's another show. For this show, you can find it in all the Radio.com original podcasts on Radio.com and the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and of course, Stitcher. And please be sure, if you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button. And don't listen to this podcast in the middle seat. Yeah, don't take it out. Don't.